Numbers chapter 22. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you. We thank you for these next three chapters, Lord God, which are just so rich in what uh, they, they speak to us and how they instruct us and how they warn us and how they encourage us. And Lord, uh, though we are mindful that without your Holy Spirit, all the instruction will be like words just bouncing off the wall. We need the Holy Spirit. Fill me, fill us with the Holy Spirit as we are going through this word. We pray, Father, that you would do a good work in it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Numbers chapter 22, the story of Balaam and Balak. Uh, I have to say, uh, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Uh, I think about this story very often. It really... Um, there is an instruction that is loud and clear uh, from this story that is uh, just indescribably important uh, to the Christian believer. And uh, that, that loud and clear statement is this, that um, if you are in Christ and you are moving forward in obedience, you are indestructible. That is the message from the story of Balaam. <clears throat> a highly unusual story, to say the least. There really is no story like it in the whole Bible. Um, you have essentially uh, this extended conversation um, of two pagans. One, uh, the king of Moab, Balak, the other is really a prophet um, who apparently at one time may very well have been used by Jehovah God, but has now more or less turned to a pagan and a sorcerer himself. You see an extended dialogue uh, among them. You get a picture here uh, into the spiritual world, into the demonic world, as we know from Ephesians chapter 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood but against principalities uh, and against the uh, rulers of this dark world. And so uh, chapter 22 of Numbers verse 1 says, Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the other side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now remember, uh, the Lord uh, has given the Israelites uh, instructions in year number 40, and this would be towards the end of year number 40 of their stay in the wilderness. All right, you have my permission. You have my go-ahead. Um, I want you to move now. Uh, this is my battle, and I want you to join me in it. And so um, they have received his permission uh, again, as we mentioned last time, one time, uh, 38 years before, they had tried to go without his permission because he had 
there had just been a rebellion. He had judged them. He said, look, you're going to be 38 years in the wilderness. Uh, they didn't like that idea. So he said, uh, some of them said, we're going to go anyway. And they were defeated by the Amalekites. And that was after Moses had warned them not to go. But now uh, uh, Moses um, here, uh, along with Caleb and uh, Joshua, the only surviving uh, people from that rebellion 38 years ago, um, the rest had died in the wilderness. These are now their children, and um, they are uh, right across here, it says, on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. It says, now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So Moab said to the uh, elders of Midian, now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. And so uh, what's going on here is that uh, Israel, we saw this from chapter 21, had had two major victories, one against um, uh, the king of Arad, uh, a Canaanite, um, who was defeated. And then as well, there had just been a victory over uh, Sihon, king of the Amorites. And that one in particular was a spectacular vi uh, victory. Uh, and we see that from a mother things, uh, verse 27 and, and, and 28, actually 27 right there through 30 in the previous chapter. There's actually a proverb about uh, the strength of uh, of Sihon and uh, and the Amorites at this time, and what happened? Uh, Israel just defeated them, and so Moab and Midian, in theory, are the next two nations in the way of Israel on their way to the Promised Land, and it says that they were sick with. Dread. Of course, they also know about uh, the defeat of uh, uh, of Egypt, and, and so uh, you have the king of uh, Moab. Uh, sort of at this time, there was appear to have been some kind of alliance between these two nations, uh, the Midianites uh, and the Moabites, and uh, they are going to try to gang up together. Uh, and uh, come against Israel, but they want to do it in such a way that it's not through uh, it, it's not through as much through physically going out to war. It's by putting a, a curse on them, a demonic curse on them. Uh, perhaps the reason for the demonic curse is so they could be easily defeated in battle, um, or Otherwise, they, they wanted a curse put on them so that they could be, they would be defeated one way or another. And 
Um, again, and we'll pick this up again in chapter 25, but uh, the principle here is uh, they are right about to cross over into the promised land. They're right about to do this great work, which um, God had been really preparing them uh, for many years. They'd promised really, really, really for hundreds of years um, that they would be occupying this land. It says in verse 1 that they were on the side of the Jordan uh, across from Jericho. So they could literally look right over uh, into the promised land. And remember, Jericho would, was going to be uh, their first major victory inside of the promised land. And so um, what a lesson for us that the devil is going to come on hard uh, right before uh, we're going to be used greatly in battle. And so uh, don't, don't be surprised um, if there is something that you're doing. Maybe you're teaching Sunday school. Maybe you're uh, ministering somewhere or, or God's uh, using you to do something that just on the eve of it, of whatever happens, that um, there is great warfare uh, that happens. Certainly that happens here. It's literally demonic warfare. Sorcery is uh, going to be used here. Now, um, it's worthy of note that uh, although Balak, the king of Moab, is, uh, is uh, basically here, he's, he's doing whatever he can to come against Israel, He's going to be hiring Balaam to uh, curse them. Uh, he does. Uh, he clearly doesn't know that God is, has, has or will instruct them, uh, the Israelites, not to talk, not to uh, go after Moab. In other words, Moab was protected, and um, so uh, really interesting thing here. Man, this is yet uh, another benefit of being in Christ is that we can go to the Lord and say, Hey, Lord, uh, I see this problem ahead of me. Um, is this, should I be worried about this? Should I be doing something about it? Um, if Balak had gone to the Lord, if somehow he had repented and gone to the Lord, the Lord would have told him uh, not to mess um, with the children with the children of, of, of Moab, because in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 9, the Lord specifically tells Moab uh, not to mess, uh, rather, he, he specifically tells Moses not to mess with Moab because uh, they were descendants of Lot. Uh, moreover, the Midianites were descendants of Abraham. And so, um, they were not to be attacked either. Uh, Abraham, through Keturah, who was his wife after Sarah, gave birth to Midian. And so uh, these folks um, are expending enormous amount of energy uh, for no reason at all. I mean, their nations were um, not going to be uh, touched on the way to um, Israel. Now, as it turns out, Midian eventually is going to be attacked because of uh, their insistence on attacking themselves. Uh, and so, uh, but if they had just done nothing, Israel would have gone right through. It says that um, 
again, it says Balak, the king of Moab, went to uh, um, went to Balaam. Verse five. It says then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come over from Egypt. See, they are covering the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall uh, be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So, uh, introduction to Balaam. He is uh, truly a mysterious character uh, in the Bible. Um, he lives, um, it says that he's a son of uh, Beor at Pethor, which is uh, near the river. That's up where uh, Laban uh, lives, uh, had lived rather, uh, up in, and, uh, in the very north part, uh, what we would consider today Syria. That's where uh, um, that's where Abraham sent his uh, servant to go get a uh, wife for Isaac. And that's where Jacob went um, and found Rachel up there. Uh, and so uh, it's what is unclear is, is what Balaam's exact history had been. What does seem clear is that he had a history with God. He had been up in that area and somehow had a history with God. He knew God. He knew of God. And it seems by the way the Lord talks with him that um, they had had, the, had had a relationship at one point. There are Jewish writers who uh, basically said that uh, at some point Balaam was a great Jewish prophet, but um, not a Jewish prophet, but a great prophet of Jehovah uh, and had apostatized. He had uh, gone into uh, sorcery. But clearly he had a history with God. We know that because um, eventually, um, after uh, this whole effort fails at cursing Israel, and uh, he is sent home from Balak, uh, I, what, what appears to have happened is he comes right back to Balak and says, hey, um, look, um, I know this God. Um, you can't curse the people of this God from, from the outside, but he is a, he's a powerful God. He's a just God. Send women, send your women into them and, uh, seduce them into adultery or into sexual immorality and into bowing down to your gods. He's a jealous God. And, uh, that way, uh, the people will be defeated because their own God will defeat them. Uh, he only could have known that um, through uh, a familiarity with Jehovah. So uh, it says in verse uh, 5 again that uh, Balak is asking uh, Balaam, please uh, come. They're too mighty for me. And, uh, but if you curse them, maybe I have a chance against them. Verse seven. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hand. And they came to Balaam and spoke to 
am the words of Balak. And, and verse 8, And he, Balaam, said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? So Balaam said to God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Look, a people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. And verse 12, God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused uh, to give me permission to go with you. And the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Then Balak again sent princes more numerous and more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak the son of Zippor, Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will certainly honor you greatly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Therefore, please come curse this people for me. Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God or uh, uh, to do less or more. Now, therefore, please, you also stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to us, say to me. And uh, God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to call you, rise and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you that you shall do. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Verse 22, And then the God's anger was aroused because he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in his way as an adversary against him. And so uh, let's talk about this. <clears throat> now we know because we um, have the benefit of the entire Bible that Balaam's name is synonymous with greed and covetousness uh, in the Bible. Um, he was synonymous with that. And, uh, and so I, I bring that up because when a person reads this account for the first time, uh, they seem confused. Why is it in verse 22 that the God's anger is aroused when, when, uh, Balaam had gone, when it appeared that the second time Balaam came to God and asked for permission, God gave him permission. And so it makes a lot more sense once you have uh, really the, uh, the, the, the benefit of the whole Bible. Uh, Balaam is, is mentioned, uh, his wickedness is mentioned uh, three times in the New Testament, included by G including by Jesus himself, by the way, 
uh, in, I believe, Revelation chapter 2. And so with the benefit of that, but also just knowing the character of God and just about the people of God, uh, it begins to make more sense over time as you study these passages. Uh, let me first say this. With, I will say first that uh, with all my heart, it, it, it appears from reading the whole account of Balaam, again, that he has a history of God. So when um, people, some people show up with money and they ask Balaam to curse the people of God, there in verses, uh, verse, verse seven and eight, it no doubt occurred to Balaam, at least in my mind, it no doubt occurred to him that he would never get permission to do that. Because if you just take a step back, Balaam knows who these people are. He knows that they're God's people. He, I believe he knew what had gone on in Egypt. He knew precisely who they were um, because he had a history with God. And uh, the fact that he even went to God to ask the question, uh, to me, says a lot about uh, his heart. Why in the world would God ever accept an invitation for Balaam or for anyone to to get a whole bunch of money in order to curse his own people. That's absurd. I personally feel like Balaam knew that. I mean, it would be like saying, um, you know, going to God because uh, someone has told you, hey, you know, I can give you a bunch of money um, if you go rob this bank. Um, that's silly to even go to God in the first place. You know, we shouldn't do it. And from time to time, you know, Christians, you'll hear them talking like this. They'll be um, asking God for permission to do things that the word of God is so clear against. And so I personally believe that asking him in the first place um, was uh, uh, was wrong. Um, but God uh, does answer him really, really clearly. It says in verse 12, you shall not go with them. Now, um, Balaam rises in the, in the morning in verse 13, and he says to the princes of Balak, go back to your land for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. Now, again, if... If, if someone really knows for certain that God, there's no way, uh, actually, in a million years that God's going to be for cursing, doing something clearly against his word and who he is, would you really answer like that? Uh, go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission. Would not it have been a better thing to say that this is out of the question this is um, not something that um, uh, I'm ever going to be able to do. In fact, um, God just told me that this is a blessed people. And so it, it would be impossible to curse these people because they are blessed. Why didn't he tell them that? Instead, he stays at the high level and some 
surmise that he's doing it hoping they'll come back knowing there's a ton of money at stake for him and he says we'll go back to your land because the Lord has refused to give me permission and so they go back to the land and Balak sends princes back more numerous more honorable than they um, he's appealing to uh, Balaam's uh, pride there and uh In verse 16 and, and 17, basically, um, uh, Balak says to Balaam, Hey, I'll give you a blank check. Just tell me how much you want, but please come and curse this people. He's terrified. Balak's terrified. Uh, and verse 8, now what should have happened? If this was a man of God, what should have happened? He would say, well, wait a second. Uh, did you not understand me the first time? There's no way this is ever going to happen. Um, this is a blessed people. And why on earth would um, would Jehovah um, allow me, say yes to my request to take a whole bunch of money in order to curse his people? That'll never happen. A God-fearing person would have said no. However, instead, Balaam said, answered, you're not supposed to talk and reason with the devil. Never do that. Do not talk and reason with the devil. That's what he does here. He answered and said to the servants of Balak, um, he said, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do uh, less or more. Therefore, you also stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. Now, verse 18 is just bluster. It is talking about the Lord my God. Um, by all indications, he absolutely, uh, Jehovah was not his God. Uh, it was just bluster. Uh, the key here that's really exposing his heart is verse 19, where he says, well, please stay here the night. Uh, see, he's, he's opening uh, the door there. And you know, the, the Bible says in Ephesians 4, 27, Give no place to the devil. Give no place to the devil. Don't reason to him. Uh, don't be uh, going into a bar, uh, a bar if you're an alcoholic saying, well, I want to have a ginger ale. I mean, this kind of thing. You know, don't, don't go, uh, you, you know, talking with a woman or a man who is not your spouse, uh, because the person has been expressing interest in uh, you um, under the rationalization, well, I just want to get to know them a little more. No, don't do that. Don't give an opening to the devil. That's what he does here. He says, stay, stay the night, uh, verse 19. And so in verse 20, it says, God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to uh, call you, rise and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. So this causes confusion among many, uh, particularly newer believers, because why is God giving him permission here? And now two verses later, he's going to be angry. And the answer, I believe, quite clearly is, is that God knew full well what Balaam's heart was. His heart was uh, filled with greed. And um, in a, you know the, 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 and so God says, well, okay, we'll just go ahead. Uh, 
and go anyway. Now, of course, we know that blessings are going to pour out of Balaam's mouth, so God's going to use all this. Um, but, but um, you know, again, there's a great lesson for us. Look, if there is something in your life which you just know in your heart of hearts it's not what God wants, if you continue to demand of God, to continue to demand of God, listen, there's this principle of free agents that were free moral agents through, uh, throughout the Bible. There's this principle of free will. Eventually, God may just let you do what he knows that your heart, one way or another, is insisting on doing. It's better just to, just to, to obey the Lord, to go to his altar and say, God, you know my heart. You know the wickedness of this. Take this away. I'm not going to ask you to do this anymore because I know it's not from you. Um, but uh, please help me, Lord. Give me grace. That would have been the thing to do. Um, uh, here with, with, um, with Balaam, uh, and clearly with you and I, when there's something on our heart that we just know in our heart of hearts is not the thing to do. It's, it's just not, you know, not a good thing to continue making demands of God. And so, again, it says the anger of the Lord was aroused because he went and he stood in the way. The angel of the Lord stood in the way, verse 22. Now, we know that this is, we believe that this is a Christophany, meaning this is a, an appearance of none other than Jesus Christ. When you see a physical appearance um, of God in the Old Testament, uh, that is the second person of the Trinity. Um, God the Father, God is spirit. Um, the Bible says no one has ever seen God the Father. God the Son is the second person of the Trinity. And um, when you see a physical appearance of God, that is Jesus. Now, why, why do we uh, think that? Well, because of verse 32 when the angel of the Lord winds up talking with Baal, uh, Balaam. He says, Behold, I have come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. And that would be a capital M. We believe that would be a capital M. Uh, um, that this is God himself, Jesus himself, speaking there. And so... Uh, it says at the end of verse 22, and he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. Now that uh, donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on this side and on the wall and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to either turn to the right or the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to 
uh, the donkey, because you have abused me, and I wish there was uh, were a sword in my hand, for I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, am, am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, no. In other words, the donkey won the argument. So uh, let's now talk about this for a while. Uh, it does say that the Lord opened Balaam's eyes So he, uh, in the next verse, in verse 31, so that he was able to see the angel of the Lord. But, um, you know, I believe that uh, it was the willful blindness type of thing. I mean, he is he, he's so blind with greed his sin has so deceived him. He he is so out of tune to uh, spiritual things that he doesn't even see the angel of, angel of the Lord, even a donkey can. And and this is is really should be a statement to you and I just about the danger of of covetousness of when we get um, something on on our heart that uh, man we. We are so bent on getting that thing, how dangerous it is, because after a while, we can't even sense the Lord's presence. Psalm 119.36 says, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Uh, covetousness, such a dangerous thing. Uh, and so um, here you have another principle, another application. I believe that, you know, the, the angel of the Lord uh, when the donkey foresaw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and uh, struck Balaam's foot. So that was the Lord's way of trying to get Balaam's attention. The Lord will try to get your attention uh, in various means uh, as well. Uh, then verse 26, the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path and the, and, uh, the donkey saw the uh, angel and laid down and again trying to get uh, the attention of Balaam. God will do the same to you when you are just uh, bent and blindly going into uh, uh, sort of a, a, a life of sin or a decision that um, the Lord doesn't want you on. And um, you know, finally, uh, the Lord has to open his eyes uh, in verse 31. I do want to, uh, you know, point this one thing out to you, this whole thing about uh, Balaam and uh, his greed and, uh, uh, again, we, we see him mentioned in the uh, uh, the New Testament, second Peter actually, uh, chapter uh, chapter three, verse, rather chapter two, verse fifteen, says this of Balaam. He says that he loved the wages of unrighteousness, and uh, it's interesting to me. One of the one of the ways that you can sort of pick that up here is is just the fact that um, Balaam flies into a fit of rage. So the, the donkey sits down and uh, he strikes uh, the donkey and 
the the donkey protests, and Balaam says in verse twenty nine, uh, you know, the donkey says, "What what have I done for you to do these things to me?" and 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 uh, Balaam says, "Because you've abused me." And by the way, if I had a sword, I would kill you. He's speaking to a donkey here. Uh, and when you look at that, if if you look, take a step back and look at that, I mean, talk about an overreaction. Uh, usually, when someone uh, flies into a fit of rage, there's something else going on. I mean, why in the world, because of a, a, a donkey who has been his donkey for many years, they lie down when they're not supposed to, or thinking they're not supposed to, why would anyone want to have the reaction of killing it? I mean, maybe some other things, but killing it in anger? Again, that is an indication that it's... It's not his anger that's the issue there. There's something else. When someone goes into that extreme where they're going to react, that where they're going to overreact that much, um, there is an indication that there's a deeper issue. And of course, here, what is it? He wants that payday. He wants that money. He's thinking of uh, Balak and his blank check. And he's thinking, this donkey is going to prevent me from making all this money. What if Balak gets a hold of another uh, sorcerer in the meantime and pays that person? And, and so, uh, I, again, uh, that is uh, the, an, an indication within the passages here that really it was money that it was all about. And of course, we know because the Holy Spirit tells us uh, in Second in Peter that that is uh, what's all about. Also in Jude 11, it, it speaks of uh, Balaam, the era of, of, of Balaam, which is about greed and a lust for profit. That's Jude uh, verse 11. And so, uh, you know, it, uh, some commentators um, also just mention here that he's so blind with greed here and he's so... Uh, angry, he doesn't even realize that a donkey is uh, is talking to him, and of course, uh, critics would read this and say, "You see, the Bible's not true. A donkey is speaking." Well, let me tell you, God can speak through a donkey. Uh, he really, really, really can, uh, and he can. The, it's a small thing for the Lord to be speaking through a donkey or through any other animal, including a serpent. Genesis chapter. Three and so uh, once you know with things like this, I tell you, the the longer I walk with Christ and the more that I experience uh, spiritual warfare and and uh, just going to uh, Haiti and northern Brazil and 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 actually witnessing firsthand uh, some things in the demonic realm, this isn't this isn't hard anymore to convince me that that uh, that the Lord used. Um, a donkey here. I mean, these kind of uh, things happen and uh, in the spiritual uh, realm. And of course, uh, you know, one of uh, one of the lines of pastors everywhere, if uh, if the Lord used a donkey to to speak, well, he can probably use me, which there is a lot of truth uh, to that statement. Actually, I, I, I hope the truth of that statement is in the hearts of 
uh, preachers everywhere, uh, particularly mine, uh, my heart. So uh, anyway, the Lord opens up Balaam's eyes and, uh, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, verse 31, with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed his head and he fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. So the Lord's really not happy that Balaam decided to go. Even though he did give his permission, God works all things for good. He does one way or another for the benefit of his people and he's going to work this for good for his people. Um, but he's, you know, expressing his anger and his, really his, his thoughts about Balaam going here in verse 32. He says, I come coming to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. Verse 33, the donkey saw me and turned aside from me th these three times if she had not turned aside from me, surely I would have killed you by now and let her live. Verse 34, Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. What do you mean, if it displeases you, I will turn back? Um, again, that's what Second Corinthians 7 calls worldly repentance. That's not real repentance there. Um, he, he's still opening up, um, leaving open the possibility that maybe the Lord will, will allow him to continue. Uh, and the Lord does. Verse 35 says, The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you, that you shall speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak, now, when Balak heard that Balaam was coming out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the border of the Arnon, the boundary of the territory, then Balak said to Balaam, did I not earnestly send to, you, send to you calling for you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? And Balaam said to Balak, look, I've come to you. Now, have I any power at all to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth that I must speak. So Balaam went with Balak and they came to Kirjoth Huzoth. Then Balak offered oxen and sheep and he sent some to Balaam to the princes who were with him. So it was the next day that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal that from there he might observe the extent of the people. And so they went up to a high place on the mountain to observe the vast multitude, two to three million uh, children of Israel, uh, moving on their way towards uh, the land of uh, Israel. They're camped there, um, overlooking uh, uh, Jericho, where they are on the other side of the Jordan. Chapter 23 says, Balaam said to Balak, build seven altars for me here and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did just as Balaam had spoken. And Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each 
altar. Now, we are going to learn later on in chapter 24 that this is all sorcery here. You, you'll never see these uh, instructions here uh, for, what is it, seven bulls and seven rams uh, and seven altars. This is just paganism uh, there. And uh, how do we know that? Well, because in chapter 24, um, it says in verse 1 uh, that Balaam went again to, uh, this time, bless the children of Israel. And it says that he did not seek to use sorcery as other as at the other times and so this is just sorcery here uh, Balaam is practicing sorcery uh, nevertheless the Lord's still going to use it it's amazing the Lord can still use uh, um, a situation like this verse 3 said Balaam said to Balak stand by your burnt offering and I will go perhaps the Lord will come to meet me and whatever, whatever he shows me I will tell you so he went to a desolate height. And God met Balaam and he said, I have prepared the seven altars. I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, return to Balak and thus you shall speak. So he returned to him and there he was standing by his burnt offering, he and the princes of Moab, and he took up his oracle and said, Balak the king of Moab has brought me from Aram. From the mountains of the east come curse Jacob for me, and come denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the tops of the rock, I see him, and from the hills I behold him, there a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob, or number one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my end be like his. And so what we see here is the first of four oracles um, for, uh, if you could say, prophecy or words from the Lord uh, that are spoken through Balaam here. They're all going to be blessings. And essentially what they are going to be, um, among other things, they, they're going to confirm really the very same promises that were have already been given to Abraham or to Israel. And it's just going to be a confirmation um, of those promises. And uh, so, uh, getting a little here into the detail, again, verse uh, 8 says, How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I do that? How shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? And of course, uh, Genesis uh, chapter uh, 12 where uh, Abraham was told by the Lord, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. That's verse 1 and 2 of, of Genesis chapter 12. So, 
Um, here he's repeating that. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? Uh, and then he says at the end of verse 9, uh, again, part of his oracle speaking of Israel, not reckoning itself among the nations. Uh, and so uh, what that means there is that uh, they are separate. They are a separate people. They are not like other people. In John 17, verse 16, it says, Jesus says when he's praying to the Father, speaking of Christians, speaking of you, if you are listening to this and you've accepted Jesus into your life, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so uh, here, Balaam is in this oracle, uh, he's saying, here's this people, and they're not reckoning themselves amongst the nations. Verse 10, he says, Who can count the dust of Jacob or number one-fourth of Israel? Oh, let me die the de death of the righteous and let me my end be like his. Again, that's um, another promise. Genesis chapter thir 13, verse 16, where uh, God promised to Abraham, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could count, uh, could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. And so, again, he's just affirming that. And then at the end of verse uh, 10, he says, let me die the death of the righteous. Now, if, 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 if you are reading carefully or hearing carefully, uh, that may strike you as a little odd. Uh, what does that mean? Righteous, that's the Hebrew word, I believe, Besharim. Uh, Israel, if you looked at what they had been doing the last 40 years, righteous, and they've been complaining nonstop. Uh, they uh, built a, you know, a golden calf as soon as uh, you know, things started getting a little rough and worshipped it. Apparently had an orgy around it. They, there had been uh, a number of different rebellions. The complaining um, had never stopped. They threatened to, to, to stone Moses. What's all that about? Why in this oracle is Israel being called righteous? Now, before I uh, actually before I answer the plus, uh, the question completely, I, I will <laughs> I will just say this. Um, this is how God views you if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, the Bible says in Ephesians 1, 4, that you are uh, perfect and blameless and holy before him in love. That's how he sees you. That's how heaven sees you in terms of the entrance requirement. However, as we're in these bodies of death with um, that we sin, we have this nature. Uh, yeah, there's sin there. And uh, we're talking about it last Sunday morning in John 13. That's why we need to have our feet washed every day. We need to go to the Lord and confess. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But in terms of how God sees you as his child, as his son, as his daughter, you are righteous. And so there are beautiful statement here of how God views his people. But more on this later, it says in verse 11, Balak's, Balak's outraged here. 
Uh, Balaam did precisely the opposite of what he had hired him to do. He says, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies and you look and look, you have blessed them bountifully. And so he answered and said, must I not take heed to speak what the Lord has put in my mouth? Then Balak said to him, please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall see only the outer part of them and shall not see them all. Curse them for me from there. Verse 14 says, so he brought him to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pisgah, and he built seven altars there and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And he said to Balak, stand here by your burnt offering while I meet the Lord and go over there. Then the Lord met Balaam and, and said, uh, and rather, and put a word in his mouth and said, go back to Balak and thus you shall speak. So he came to him and there he was standing by the burnt offering and the princes of Moab were with him. And Balak said to him, what is the Lord spoken? Then he, Balaam, took up his oracle and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and he will not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him. And the mountains and the shout of a king is among them. God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox, for there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. It now must be said of Jacob and of Israel, Oh, what God has done. Look, a people rises like a lioness and lifts itself up like a lion. It shall not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Uh, that could not have been too encouraging to Balak. Again, Israel shall not lie down until it devours the, the, the prey and drinks the, the blood of the slain. Verse 25 says, Balak said to Balaam, neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. And so um, here you have just a fantastic... Uh, so much truth, so rich, this oracle here. Uh, verse 19, again, Balaam uh, says, God is not a, uh, a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent, as he said and he will not do. What did he say? Again, this is an affirmation of the promises that have previously been given to Israel. Israel had been promised in the book of Exodus that they would... Uh, be that God had given them the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk of, and honey, and God cannot go back on that. God is not a man that he should lie. And so for you, I just urge you that you, if there's a promise that God has made in your life, um, stick to it. He's not going to lie. Maybe circumstances look like the promise is not going to come to fruition. Uh, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Here you have some circumstances where there's a bunch of people cursing him, and 
uh, and uh, and it, it looks like you know the devil and all his angels are coming against the people of God. It doesn't matter; they were not going to fail because God had promised them that land. And if God has made you a promise, of course you need to inquire whether the promise has indeed been from God. Is it a heart thing, or is it something that has been confirmed in your heart as well as the? Um, you know, through the mouth of confirmation of, of godly people in your life and, and, and signs from the Lord, uh, you gotta, you got to confirm that it is a promise. But if it is, you just got to keep your faith. God is not going to go back. He's not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. And... Um, Verse twenty says, "Behold, I receive a command to bless. He is blessed, and and I and and I cannot reverse it." I think of Isaiah fifty four seventeen, well known verse: "No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper." Uh, you cannot attack God's people from without. If you are walking in obedience forward with the Lord, you are indestructible, indestructible, including. Um, from any attack of the enemy. 1 John 5.18 says that if you keep yourself, that if any man who is born of God keeps himself, the evil one cannot touch him. So if you keep yourself in God's way, it says, the enemy can't touch you. And so the same principle here that we're seeing really on a much more practical level with Israel on its way to the promised land. Verse 21, okay, so here we pick it up again. It says that God has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. What? I think he has not observed iniquity in Jacob or seen wickedness in Israel? Oh, he had. Um, however, when God imputes righteousness on a people, he doesn't see iniquity on them. Hebrews chapter 10 says, By one offering, uh, Jesus perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You are perfect in Christ. If you have given your heart and life to Christ, believing what he did for you on the cross and that he raised from the dead um, after three days, you are perfect in Christ. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, our righteousness is the very same righteousness of Christ. There's no distinction when God looks at us in Christ. And so just a, an amazingly beautiful and profound statement. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob. Neither does he observe iniquity in you, even as you are in Christ. Verse 22, God bring, uh, brings them out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. And uh, interesting here, just that very simple statement in verse 21, it says the Lord God is with him. So in the Old Testament, you read in places like 1 Kings uh, chapter 20, verse 23, after the Israel had defeated the Syrians, some of their counselors uh, came, some of the Syrian counselors came to the king and said, well, hey, uh, 
they defeated you in the hills, but this god is the god of the hills, and so well, let's uh, attack him in the plain because um, he has no power there, and eventually um, the Syrians were defeated because God wanted to prove to the Syrians or make very clear to the Syrians that he was the God of the whole world. He's the God of the hills. He's the God of the plain. He's God of everyone, everywhere. And, you know, it's, it's true of, of us. It doesn't matter where we are, are in the world. It says in verse 21, the Lord is with us. The Lord is with him. Israel doesn't have to stay in the same place because that piece of ground under them is what God, uh, you know, what God is God over. No, he's God of the whole world, uh, the Bible says. And so, uh, so an important point there, Balak, that's the reason Balak's going to different places and trying to get Balaam to curse Israel from different places because he thinks that you know, maybe in one place God is not a God over. Well, he's learning that's not the case. Verse 26, Balaam responds to Balak, who's quite upset at him. He says, did I not tell you that all that the Lord speaks I must do? Then Balak said to Balaam, please come, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God from you uh, that you may curse them from me from there. Rather, that you may curse them for me from there. So, you see, again, he's taking him around, thinking somehow the geography is going to make a difference. Still not completely learning here that God is the God of the world. Every place in that mountain, he's walking around, running around there, where that mountain chain, God is the God of. Uh, just like with you, wherever you go, Hebrews chapter 13, Jesus will never um, leave you or, or forsake you. Verse 28 says, So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor that overlooks the wasteland. Then Balak, Balaam said to Balak, build for me here seven altars, prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam said and offered a bull and a ram on every offer, um, um, altar. Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord uh, to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek to use sorcery. So he had no part in those seven altars and seven rams, but he set his face toward the wilderness. He raised his eyes. He saw Israel and camped according to their tribes and the spirit of God came upon him. Real interesting there. It says the spirit of God came upon this uh, wicked man. And God can do that. God can use anyone. He can use a donkey. He can use a, a wicked man. He can use a rock. Uh, he can use me, anyone, to speak his word. Verse 3, then he took up his oracle and said, the utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of a man whose eyes are open, the utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees the visions of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars besides the waters. He shall pour water from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag. His kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. He bows down. He lies down as a lion and as a lion who shall um, 
rouse him. Blessed is he who blesses you, and curse, cursed is he who curses you. So again, he's repeating the promise there made to Abraham in chapter 12. Uh, Blessed is he who curses you. Cursed is he who curses you. Uh, You know, I tell you, you're on your own if you start cursing Israel or become the enemy of Israel. Uh, I believe the United States, if it withdraws support from Israel, at that point it's on its own. It's over, guys. It's over, gals. <laughs> uh, look, nigh, look, look nigh for our redemption is near. I mean, if that happens. Um, but here you have another uh, beautiful uh, uh, prophecy. Some believe that verse 6 and 7, which speaks of the gardens by the riverside, the aloes planted by the Lord, the cedars behind the water, Israel eventually would become a, a fruit basket, a, a, um, just a, 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 you know, a great place. Uh, it, it, it really transformed um, under the children of Israel for, you know, from a land to a land that was, it was fruitful before they got in there, to be sure. I mean, when the 10 spies went in at Kadesh Barnea, they came back with uh, grapes that had to be carried on shoulders. But um, things really did peak uh, under David and Solomon. And even today, Israel, uh, just a major exporter of fruit uh, in the world. And um, here at this particular place that, that they're at here, which is Jordan, modern day Jordan, it's just desolation. It's just wilderness. There would be no way for, um, you know, when they're overlooking Jericho, they're not, they're not seeing vast gardens and cedars, um, a forest of cedars. And so many believe that is a uh, prophecy here uh, in verse six and, and seven there. And uh, of course, Balak doesn't like anything he's hearing. It says in verse 10, Balak's anger was aroused against Balaam and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies and look, you have bountifully blessed them these three times. Now therefore flee to your place. I said I would greatly honor you, but in fact, the Lord has kept you back from honor. That's an important verse there. There's two ways to uh, via, uh, rather, there's two two ways to interpret this verse. Um, either Balak here is seeming to speak from the Lord, for the Lord by saying, "The Lord has kept you back from honor." Um, and that he is misrepresenting the Lord and trying to convince Balaam that, um, look, you're not going to be, um, uh, you're not going to be honored. It's sort of in the future. Um, the the third commandment says that do not take the Lord of your God in vain. We should never say that we're speaking for the Lord when we're not speaking for the Lord. It's unclear here. He may be trying to uh, falsely speak on behalf of the Lord here by saying that the Lord has kept you back from honor. Uh, More likely, though, what this is talking about is he's just speaking the truth here that because you have only spoken what the Lord has spoken to you, 
it's keeping you back from riches. It's keeping you back from honor because I would have greatly honored. And, and so that has great application to our lives because sooner or later there will be times, multiple times over the course of the year where, um, I don't know, at work, um, you will have the opportunity just to do something undercover. And if you do, it'll mean an extra bonus for you or a promotion or, or something like that. Uh, one way or another, at some point, you are going to have to uh, obey the Lord and show the world who your Lord is and that you're actually willing to be refused from honor, refused from, from riches. You know, one, one issue that is uh, near and dear to my heart in this way is on a regular basis, I have someone come up to me after church or call me during the week they have recently taken a job, a, a, a full-time job, a new job, and then two weeks later, uh, some other employer that they had been talking to comes along with a, an offer for more money. And um, they say, well, Pastor Steve, what do you think? And inevitably, um, you know, well, I always tell them the same thing. Uh, first, I get a few facts out of the way, and uh, well, is this a contract job or is this like a full-time job with benefits and things like this? Uh, but if they confirm it's a full-time job, uh, I I tell them, look, Psalm 15 says this: "Who may abide on my holy holy hill? He who uh, keeps his oath, even when it hurts." And because I can tell you, if if you take um, a new job and then two weeks later quit because you're leaving to another job because it has more money and it's very careful that's that's the maybe the sin of Balaam there uh, because I can tell you that the that um, you're bringing reproach on you and the Lord if people um, you know who who hired you uh, know that you're a Christian because I was a manager for 15 to 20 years. And uh, let, let me tell you, if you hire someone and two weeks later they say, I'm going to go take this other job. It's given me $20,000 more a year. That really gets people angry. That, that gets people actually, speaking of cursing, that really does get people cursing at you. The world will curse at you for that. And you will bring, you will bring reproach on the name of the Lord. Now, I'm not saying there are not there may not be exceptions to the rule, but listen, uh, I've heard all the arguments. Well, I got to support my family. Well, under your current job that you just took and gave them that your word uh, uh, that that you would start work there, are you able to pay your bills? Well, yes. Well, then you need to stay there. Now, I'm not saying that you have to stay there indefinitely, but you know, I believe what I usually tell people: look, you got to stay there at least a year, otherwise. You're bringing reproach upon the name of the Lord. And I got to tell you, it's hard uh, telling this to people because, um, you know, that a little extra money is good. But here's what I have found out in the past. If you honor the Lord, eventually you will get way more money in the end, way more riches, may work, way more honor in the end uh, than... Um, if you had gone ahead and just jumped at this opportunity um, for a little bit more money uh, with the reproaches against the Lord and against you coming along 
with it from your current employer. And so um, I hope that makes sense. I, I, I think it's integrity in the body of Christ is uh, incredibly important. And we've lost a, a, a lot of it. We've lost a lot of our reputation in the world uh, because we're basically, it's the sin of Balaam, um, just with, with greed. And uh, look, you know, we have to, um, we have to obey the Lord. Shadrach, Meshach, and, and Abednego, when they were uh, threatened um, with their own lives, that Nebuchadnezzar was going to, to take their life uh, if they did not bow down to the big golden image. What did they say? Well, God's going to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, I'm not going to bow down to that golden image. We shouldn't, Christians should not be bull, bowing down to the golden image um, of mammon. Oh, how do I, how I miss the expression from the King James Version for money or mammon, filthy lucre. But anyway, let's go on. So verse 12, let's wrap it up. Balaam said to Balak, did I not also speak to your messengers whom you sent to me saying, if Balak were to give me the house full of gold and silver, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord to do good or bad or of my own will. What the Lord says that I must speak. And now indeed I am go I'm going to my people. Come, I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the latter days. And so if things for, with Balak had not gotten worse, Balak said, <laughs> Balaam said, no, not only am I going to shut my mouth, I'm going to tell you uh, yet something else about this people. And, oh, is this one going to be uh, going to really top all of them off, all the blessings off? Because there is going to be in this oracle uh, a prophecy of the coming of none other than Jesus Christ. Verse 15 says, Balaam took up his oracle and said, the utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the utterance of the man whose eyes are open, the utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the visions of Almighty, who falls down with eyes open. I see him, speaking of the Messiah, but not now. I behold him, speaking of the Messiah, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. And Edom shall be a possession, Seir also, his enemy shall be a possession, while Israel does valiantly out of Jacob one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. Then he looked at Amalek, and he took up his oracle and said, Amalek was first among the nations, but shall be last until he perishes. And then he looked at the Kenites and took up his oracle and said, Firm is your dwelling place, and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned. How long until Asher carries you away captive? Then he took up his oracle and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this. But ships shall come from the coast of Cyprus. They shall afflict Asher and afflict Eber, and so shall Amalek until he perishes. So Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place, and Balak also went his way. Okay, so just wrapping up here, what we see in this last oracle is a prophecy of none other than Jesus Christ 
Here Balaam goes from the near term to the distant future. He says, I see him, speaking of the Messiah, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Meaning this is going to happen, you know, no time soon. Uh, and he says, a star shall come out of Jacob. Now, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus, apparently with reference to this uh, very um, prophecy right here, uh, says this. He says, ooh, now I can't find the verse. Where is the verse that I am looking for? Where Jesus refers to himself as the morning star. I don't see it right now. It is somewhere in the first couple, two or three chapters um, of Revelation, where Jesus himself puts, uh, refers himself uh, to the, uh, refers himself as the morning star, but wouldn't you have it? I don't see it right now, but trust me, it's there, and you can go read it uh, in due time. Uh, he does, by the way, in Revelation 2.14, Jesus himself refers to the doctrine of, Bala, uh, of Balaam. And, uh, and so Jesus, uh, well aware of the, he is very well aware of Balaam himself, of course, he was very familiar with scripture. But he refers to himself as the, as the morning star uh, in uh, somewhere there in Revelation 2 and 3. So this is uh, um, uh, uh, from Revelation. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm wrong. i just seeing my notes now. It's not Revelation 2 and 3. That's the reference to Balaam. Actually, the reference to the morning star is uh, Revelation 22, 16. 22, 16. Um, which is at the very, very end of the Bible, the very last chapter. Um, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. There you have it. I'm glad I caught that. So uh, uh, in addition there, in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, Balaam refers to a scepter, that shall rise out of Israel. And that appears to be a reference to Genesis uh, 49, where uh, Jacob is blessing uh, his children at the very end of uh, Genesis. And with Judah, of course, Jesus, the line of Judah says, that scepter shall not depart from who? From Judah. Uh, and in addition to that, verse 19, out of Jacob, one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. And uh, so uh, these are these these are prophecies. Now, this is typical for the um, Old Testament. You will see this repeatedly. And in, 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 for example, the book of Isaiah, there's a near term fulfillment. 
um, that uh, you know Moab and Midian actually and Edom um, will be defeated. Of course, the Amalekites, verse twenty, will be uh, completely uh, annihilated. Uh, but uh, there is a long-term uh, fulfillment of the prophecy. And uh, that is the coming of Christ. Of course, you could say in these, there's a, a short term. Uh, there is a short term uh, fulfillment of it. There'll be a medium term through David. And then there's a long term through Christ um, when, uh, uh, when Christ uh, uh, comes back. And man, if you really wanted to go crazy, there's a, a short term, which is going to be the victories that they're going to have uh, really within a matter of months. There's a, a, a medium term where David uh, comes uh, and he uh, defeats uh, a number of these people. Then there's Christ in Bethlehem and then there's Christ in his second return. So anyway, there you have it. We have gone uh, well over and I apologize for that. But um, we will pick it up next time in Numbers chapter 25. God bless you.